For the week of Thursday, November 14th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello and welcome back, everyone. Anything interesting happen while I was gone? I kid. The Democrats took the house, yo. And we also had some major victories here at home in Washington. To break it all down, we talked first with Indivisible's policy director, Angel Padilla, about the release of Indivisible's brand new guide, Indivisible on Offense. The guide covers what it means to go on offense as activists, about how to hold their elected officials to their campaign promises, and about the importance of the first 100 days in a legislative session. Things that a party pushes in those first 100 days signals what their priorities are. So what we will see from House Democrats, the different bills that they put forward and and that they pass are basically their legislative priorities. And the reason why they're so important is because those will set the tone for the next three years. It's not just the first 100 days, it's the next three years. Then we are joined by former State Representative Marcy Maxwell and by the political director for the Washington Senate Democratic campaign, Alex Bond, to talk about some of the big gains for Democrats in both the state Senate and the state legislature. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So a lot of Indivisible members have been asking themselves what comes next in the wake of the Democrats flipping the House in the midterm election. And it's a good question. How do we in Indivisible respond most effectively to this new and, uh, quite frankly, wonderful post-election reality? Uh, As pretty much everybody listening knows, the original Indivisible document was all about playing defense when the Democrats had no power in our federal government. But last Tuesday, all that changed. So what now? Well, the staff at National Indivisible have been hard at work on a document called Indivisible Indivisible on Offense, which is, for all intents and purposes, the Indivisible Guide 2.0. And here to walk us through some of the finer points is Angel Padilla. He is the policy director with Indivisible, and he joins us now. Hey, Angel. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for joining us. So uh, this new guide outlines two new tactics and one existing one, which we will go over one by one. Uh, The first is going on offense. The second is about oversight. And the third is defense. So let's talk first about offense. What does it mean to be on offense right now? How does that change things from the battles that we've fought over the last two years? I mean, you talk in the guide about the Democrats now having agenda setting power. Tell us what that means. So, uh, yeah, that's the big difference. Agenda setting power is what we haven't had for the last two years. Um, And that's basically it means two big things. One is the very sort of literal, uh, you know, ability to set the agenda on the congressional calendar. So what does the House or the Senate vote on? We had no control over it or Democrats had no control over it for the last two years. Um, So that's a big change that we have an ability to really put things that we want onto the onto the legislative calendar. Um, But the other thing, uh, which is just as important, is. When you control one of the chambers, you have a a new way of promoting new ideas to to shape the the national discussion. Uh, And so agenda setting power is is the ability to to move particular pieces of legislation and to change or to shape the national discourse, uh, which is a new important thing, especially in the age of Trump, because Republicans and Trump himself through Twitter and through his, you know, through different his different platforms. Uh, has been able to define the narrative, and now Democrats can help, uh, you know, push back on that narrative. So that's the big difference. Uh, and when we talk about agenda-setting power, that's what we—that's what we mean. Yeah, yeah. So setting the narrative absolutely important, and uh, a new power for for Democrats uh, in in recent days, particularly in the last two years. Um, on the conference call the other night, you and others at Indivisible talked about the importance of pushing for progressive legislation in the first 100 days. So talk about the importance of the first 100 days of a new Congress. 
Yeah, that's a good good question. So um, the first hundred days of a new Congress are really important because it is they signal the things that we that 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 a party pushes in those first hundred days signals what their priorities are. So um, what we will see from House Democrats, the different bills that they put forward and and that they pass are basically their legislative priorities. And the reason why they're so important is because those will set the tone for the next three years. It's not just the first 100 days, it's the next three years. Um, if we get something on, for example, a big pro-democracy bill, a bill that pushes back on all the corruption that we're seeing out of the administration, all the money in politics, if we get something like that out of the, the democratically controlled house, then that is the baseline for the next three years. It is what presidential candidates will be talking about. It is what right. will like move early when we do have power back in 2021. So the the different things that we see early on are really important. So it, you know the things that we're hearing are a big pro democracy bill. Uh, there will be, for example, something on immigration, something like a, a Dream Act, a uh, Dream Act plus TPS possibly. Um, you know, so the things that we see, you know, we want to see big, bold, progressive things out of that uh, out of democrats and um just to 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 put a finer point on this this is um this is basically their argument for what their vision for america is um this is you know what we've gotten from trump is his vision and his vision is super it's racist it's xenophobic it's sexist uh it favors the wealthy and the powerful over everyone else that is their vision but what, what is unclear to us and what we will need to define leading up to 2020 is what Democrats stand for. And so the first 100 days is the beginning of that picture. Uh, and it really does set the tone for the next two years. And then what we might actually pass once we had unified, once we have unified control of the government. And that gets into what you talk about in the guide as being the difference between messaging bills and must pass bills. And I think what's interesting uh, about uh, messaging bills in particular is that they're not expected to pass. The, the, the Democrats in the House know that most of the things that they're going to put forward are not going to be passed by the Senate and they certainly won't be signed by Trump. Um, so let's then talk about the difference between messaging bills and must-pass bills. You you basically outlined it here, but just talk a little bit more in depth about what a messaging bill specifically is. So, yeah, a messaging bill is, is you know, what what we want to see. It's, it's the ideal. Um, and, and the reason why we want to do that is, again, to, to draw a contrast between what we as progressives want to see versus the stuff that we're seeing out of Republicans. Um, and also, it's important to, to make them progressive because they become the baseline. If we get a really solid progressive bill on any issue, um, when Democrats control the House, then that is what we'll be negotiating in 2021. If we get the opposite, you know, if we get Democrats negotiating with themselves, um, then that becomes a baseline. And what we'll be debating when we have power is going to be something weaker than what we want. Um, now, uh, again, you're right. Like it, the, these bills won't pass. It's just to start the, the policy debates. Right. We want to we want to define the policies for the future. Now, must pass bills are things that absolutely need to pass. There aren't many of these, but um, these are bills that, that both chambers of Congress need to pass and the president needs to sign, Trump needs to sign in order uh, to avoid some kind of disaster. So, for example, um, one of the, the most common ones are the budget bills, the, the funding bills. Right. Every year, Congress needs to fund the government. And if it doesn't, we get a shutdown. Um, that's considered a must-pass bill because it, you know, Congress has to pass it or we get a shutdown. There are other things. There's the um, there's the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, um, which sets the the spending limits for for the Defense Department. That is another must-pass bill. Um, and then there are other things like the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling there in, in this coming spring, um, we will hit the debt ceiling, and so 
um, there will be a need to extend it. And that is another must pass bill. So then how can the Democrats exert pressure here? Is that by insisting on certain provisions in order to vote for one of these bills, I presume? Yeah. So um, because there must pass um, there, you know, both sides need to come to some some agreement. And now with Democrats controlling the House, we can get something out of those negotiations before it was just Republicans negotiating with other Republicans. But now with Democrats, we can push for some of the things we want. Now, this won't mean that we'll get the big landmark pieces of legislation that we want, um, but we can start to make positive uh, some progress on the things that we care about. So a good example of this um, is on immigration. You know, uh, ICE, the, the ICE budget has been going up and up and up since it was created in 2003. Um, you know, and, and, you know, now that we have control of the House, there should be no reason, especially under this administration, why we increase the budget for ICE, uh, given all that's happening. And Democrats can make that happen if they make it one of their uh, deal breakers in the negotiations. Now, in a practical sense, is this something that Indivisible is going to be pushing certain members of Congress on in terms of timing? Are we going to have a coordinated push on specific issues at specific times? Yeah, so this is this this takes some time. I mean, the, we don't and it's also uncertain. We don't know when, for example, the next budget bill will be. I mean, there's one on December 7th. Um, you know, this is before Democrats can take take control of the House. Right. Uh, we don't know when or how long that is going to extend to. So we could have another uh you know, budget fight in January or February, or it could be in September at the end of the fiscal year. We don't know when it'll happen, but what we know is that there will be an opportunity and and really an obligation for Democrats to really pursue, to push, to defend progressive, core progressive priorities. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't have to be the ice winning. That is one of the things that we have definitely identified as something that we, we hope Democrats will fight for, but it's a number of things. Uh, and so we will be uh, pressuring both, uh, you know, the, the the new freshmen, the, the the progressives, and the moderates that just got elected, and some of the incumbents, uh, the Democrats, because they we want them to use their new powers on things like must pass bills to really defend and you know communities that are being under attack, our core progressive priorities, and to just continue to reject the Trump agenda the way that voters did on, you know, last week. Well, you talk about the incoming progressives as well as the moderates, and uh, you speak in the guide about the power of Democrats sticking together and voting in a block. Uh, James Homan from The Washington Post just had a great piece about the expanding power of the Progressive Caucus, uh, whose numbers are going to actually swell to 90, which is much greater than the three dozen members of the Freedom Caucus. So a lot of power there. Uh, But there are a number of Democrats who just got elected from purple or even red districts. How do we keep them on board with voting for progressive legislation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so it, it takes a number of things. I don't think there's, uh, you know, a one size fits all approach here. I think definitely moderates from purple districts or even some of these red districts need to feel the pressure from their constituents that, you know, they need to feel support when they vote the right way and they need to get, you know, hit back or, or they need to see, feel some pushback if they vote the wrong way. So the the grassroots constituent pressure for all of these members is going to matter, whether they're progressive or moderate. Um, we really want to see strong leadership that is going to be pushing, um, you know, progressive bills and that's going to be whipping votes, which we don't always see. We definitely didn't see that out of Schumer um, last year, uh, the last two years. Uh, but then we also, as we talk about in the guide, we need a progressive voting block because uh, you're right, there will be you know upwards of, of 90 CPC members, progressive members in the House. Um, if they stick together, they are the balance of power in the House. And so they uh, can shape the debate. And what, even though we might lose some of these moderates, if we have 
um, if we have a strong progressive voting bloc, uh, we really, really become the center of gravity. We really get to to, to negotiate on our terms when there are some of these bills on the floor. And it's kind of exciting uh, for people here in the state because in addition to Mark Pocan of Wisconsin, we also have our very own Pramila Jayapal, who is a very prominent member of the Progressive Caucus. So that's that's really exciting here. So let's shift over and talk about the second tactic in the guide, and that's about oversight. Um, we know that Democratic House committees are already preparing a number of investigations against Trump and his administration. This is pretty self-explanatory, but talk about the power that the Democrats are going to be able to wield in these committees. Yeah, this is one of the most exciting parts of the new the new Congress. Um, you know, with control of the House come a ton of new powers, and these are the powers, these are the levers that we need to use to fight back. Uh, this is why this is, you know, we, we separate this in the guide. You know, we have offense and oversight and defense, but um, but really it's there are two different ways to play offense. You have offense through messaging bills and then you also have offense through oversight because because of the new tools. Um, so, for example, um, you know, every committee, every major committee has subpoena power so you can get to the bottom of what's happening. So, for example, if you are, um, you know, taking the example of FEMA and the the, the sort of awful way that the recovery and the response was from our government. Um, I mean, that was a failure of our government. 3,000 people, Americans, died as a result of the handling of FEMA. They died not because of the hurricane, but because of the way that it was handled after the hurricane. Um, And there's not been one real investigation on what happened, you know, in Puerto Rico. Um, Democrats now have control of the committee that oversees, that provides oversight over FEMA. They can bring in all of those officials they can bring them in to Congress and question them. They can request documents and get to the bottom about uh, of what happened. That's just one example. I mean, the the list of things is pretty much endless. I mean, yes, it is. <laughs> There's you, a lot. You can get Trump's taxes on nope. day one. That's a day one thing you can do. You can investigate ICE and CBP in the way that they've been operating. You can investigate, um, you know, Ben Carson's dining room set that cost thirty one thousand um, dollars. All of those things are, 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 you know, are now subject to. Uh, investigation by Democrats uh, through the committee process and through oversight. And that's what's so exciting about the new powers. Yeah, it is pretty awesome considering the amount of things to investigate with this particular administration. Uh, And I I think it's a good point that you make that oversight is actually under the umbrella of offense. So how can Indivisible exert our influence here with the oversight committees? Yeah, that's a great question. So something to keep in mind is that, you know, now uh, we'll, we'll control the House or Democrats will control the House. But uh, it's something about, uh, you know, I think it's 60 percent of Democrats in the next Congress won't know what it's like to serve in the majority. That is huge. You know, these are members who don't know what it's like to sit on a committee, don't know, uh, you know, to be in charge of a committee, don't know what it means to to issue subpoenas. They, they've never had that opportunity. Um, and so, they, you know, because they're uh, you know, new to this, they're going to need a lot of help. And one way of helping them is to really make it clear to them what you want to see. So, for example, if you have a member um, who sits on one of these important committees or subcommittees, um, and if you think they're not doing their job on something, if they're not really investigating something that they should be investigating, for example, Hurricane Maria or Trump's, uh, you know, collusion with with foreign governments, um, then if that's not happening, then you can keep ask you can ask them to do it. Um, you can ask them to write letters to, um, to you know, they can, they can pressure their own members on the committee. They can pressure uh, members of the administration. All of these new tools are available to them. It's not clear that they'll use them. And so that's why constituent pressure on these members is going to continue to be important. 
Yeah, lots of ways to do it. And as you say, we've got a huge incoming freshman class who will be learning the ropes. And so there's an opportunity for us to inform that process with our presence. So I want to talk briefly about impeachment because it does come up in the guide. Uh, Most Democratic candidates shied away from this during the election, I think in part because they wanted to focus on other things like health care, but also because it's it's very difficult in a practical sense. Uh, The Senate would need a two thirds majority to convict to remove Trump from office if he were impeached by the House, which is a very high bar. What's indivisible stance on impeachment? Yeah, so like we we consider the things that we've already seen uh, under Trump to be, uh, you know, there have been crimes and abuses that need that that warrant impeachment. But the problem is that it's a political process. Um, you know, that's why again the oversight portion of this is so important. We have to make sure that we reach that high bar. You said two thirds uh, to convict in the Senate. Um, right now, we don't have the votes. If there if there were, if we if Democrats came out of the gate and, and called for impeachment. Um, then we would probably lose that vote. It would mean that Trump would stay in office and it would probably empower him. It would probably strengthen his position going into 2020. That's not what we want to do. What we want to do is make a solid airtight case against Trump first uh, and then go towards impeachment. And the best way of doing that is through, again, those investigations in the House. I mean, you can you can, you can can investigate through the Intelligence Committee. You can investigate through the Judiciary Committee. You can investigate through the Government Oversight Committee, a number of, of committees where you can really get to the bottom of all of those crimes. And once you have that case, once you have that strong enough case, then you can impeach and then you can you can convict. But if you do it too quickly, too soon, it may blow up on our faces. Yeah, I, I think there's no uh, unringing that bell. Uh, I think impeachment is something that you can only uh, attempt once. It's not like the Republicans under Obama trying to repeal the ACA however many times they, they yep. did dozens and dozens of times. But yeah, so ultimately the idea is to make Trump politically toxic through these committee investigations, which would then yeah. ideally bring more senators on board. So then the the last thing is familiar to most people, and that is is defense. Uh, here in Washington, uh, the balance of power has shifted slightly. We've just increased the number of Democratic representatives by one in the 8th District, but we will continue to have two Democratic senators, and for them, we need to play defense. Uh, and we're pretty familiar with that. But, you know, you mentioned a few tactics uh, in the guide that senators in the minority have. And some of them we're familiar with. Filibustering is one. You also mentioned withholding consent. That was something that came up during the fight to save the ACA. You also mentioned something called denying quorum. And that was new verbiage to me. Tell us what's meant by that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the in Congress and especially in the Senate, um, there is a requirement that there be a quorum for certain procedures. So, for, for example, in committees or even to have a, a vote on the floor, um, you need to have a certain number of members present in order to conduct business. Um, and one tactic that Democrats can use is basically not show up. And if there are if if, if there aren't enough senators in the room when, uh, you know, at, for either a, a committee hearing or a vote, uh, if there aren't enough senators present, they can't conduct the business. So it's a way of slowing it down. Now, this is not something that you can, uh, there is a way around this, uh, just to be clear. Um, the Senate is kind of an odd, an odd place where you can just change the rules whenever you want. Um, so a committee chairman, for example, can change the rules on the quorum requirement, or, or Mitch McConnell can change the rule on on the uh, on the quorum requirement on the on the Senate floor. But the point is that it's a way of slowing things down. Yeah. Uh, and Democrats need to do everything they can to slow down the process. And so uh, if you do this enough, it just becomes a thorn in their side. It makes it harder to, to conduct business. 
all that is necessary because what we're trying to do is wait out the next two years until we take back the Senate. And and again, like um, the harm, most of the harm that we're going to see next year in Congress is going to be out of the Senate. There are things that we just can't stop. I mean, uh, nominations are going to continue. And even though we have control of the House, we can't stop those nominations in the Senate. Um, it's going to be very hard to do it anyway. And so what we can do is slow down the process. And this is just another way of doing that. Right. Well, that makes sense. And, and that'll be likely something that we will be called upon to do with the Senate over the next couple of years. So in terms of immediate action right now, Indivisible is advising groups to plan for events on three specific dates. First on January 3rd, that is the first day of the new Congress, uh, that date or thereabouts. The second one is during the February recess and then one at the end of the first 100 days. And we talked about the importance of that. So, so first talk about the January 3rd action. What what are we asking members here to do? So the first uh, day of the new Congress is really important because it really will set the tone for um, for the, the next two years. And, and more importantly, or just as importantly, um, you know, what we want to do is remind members of Congress, especially the Democrats who just came to power because of all of these voters, all these Dem voters. You know, we want to remind them who they work for. They work for the voters. And so that's why we're hoping to do a national day of action starting January 3rd. And it's supposed to be January 3rd. Um, but but I, we understand that, you know, it's not it can't all happen on the same day sometimes. And so there will be some events um, throughout that week or in the, in the days following. But the point is to be able to tell your member of Congress and their staff to remind them that, hey, we put you into office and now we expect you to serve us and work for us and push for a progressive, bold policy. Absolutely. And it's certainly a way uh, if people do it uh, all at once, all across the country, it's a great way to make Indivisible's voice heard nationally. And that's very important. Well, Angel Padilla is the policy director for Indivisible. And we thank you so much for joining us on the show, man. Yeah, uh, glad to be on. Last Tuesday was a good night for Democrats in state legislature races. Across the country, Democrats flipped eight chambers nationally from red to blue. Here at home, Democrats made gains across the board, picking up two seats in the state Senate and six in the House. And this is with two Senate races and two House races uh, currently too close to call. So did we have a blue wave here in Washington? And more importantly, what is going to be possible for Democrats to get accomplished in 2019 to address these and other questions? I brought back two people from our panel from a month back. So we are joined once again by Marcy Maxwell. Marcy served as state representative from the 41st District from 2009 to 2013. She also served as Governor Inslee's senior education policy advisor. Hello, Marcy. Hello, Stephen. Also with us is Alex Bond. He is the political director for the Washington Senate Democratic Campaign. Welcome back, Alex. Hey there. Glad to be back. Yeah, so I want to get into specifics here in just a moment, but I'd love to just kind of start generally by talking about your takeaways from election night, and particularly if there were any surprises. Marcy, were there any surprises for you on the House side in terms of candidates who won or maybe who didn't? Uh, Oh, gosh. You know, I'm not sure I want to call them surprises as much as uh, how pleasing it was. Mm. Um, There was some very hard work and great candidates that we had that stepped up to run hard races. And uh, so it was really great to see them, uh, you know, pull ahead and uh, win their races. They, they just were the best. They yeah. were the best candidate. Absolutely. Well, Alex, uh, any races on the Senate side that were of particular surprise to you? You know, I don't think we had any big surprises. We knew that some of these races were going to be razor thin. Um, you know, we were running in 
districts that are typically more Republican, and we knew that the district was going to be challenging, and we knew that our path to victory was going to be a narrow one. And, you know, we knew that in some of these districts, also like the 30th district in Federal Way, where Claire Wilson is beating Mark Melosha pretty solidly, we knew that this was a district where there were going to be more Democratic votes cast than Republican votes, and the issue was just making sure that all the Democrats voted for Claire, and if all the Republicans vote for Mark, you know, we win that matchup. And so, um, you know, I think it's been a bit of a surprise how long we've had to sort of sit on the edges of our seats that uh, were, you know, more than a week out now. And we still had several races that are too close to call both here in Washington state and nationally. Sure. Um, you know, you kind of hope that, you know, we always expect to have one or two, but to have as many as we have is a, is a bit of a surprise, but uh, that's the nature of, um, you know, some of these really tough districts. That's, that's the world that we have to live in. Well, I'm going to get you to give us an update on some of those races that are too close to call in just a second. But I would just sort of add that one of the more pleasing races for me was Patty Cooter soundly defeating, quote unquote, Democrat Rodney Tom in the 48th. And I know we talked about that on the last show. So that was a great victory. And, you know, just speaking of the number of women's victories that we saw here at the legislative level, uh, I think is noteworthy, um, especially because during the 2018 legislative session, Washington had a total of of 55 female legislators. That was 36 in the House and 19 in the Senate for a total of 37% of the entire legislature. And that is about to increase. Uh, Marcy, you have a pact that we talked about last time, win with women. You have to be feeling great about a lot of these victories. You know, I was on the phone this morning with the win with women board. And one of the things that we were celebrating is the fact that our Washington state house now is going to be majority women. That is majority, awesome. Majority women on the, you know, on the Democratic caucus. I, I don't think we have the, the number for the full house yet, but the, the Democratic caucus is definitely majority women. And, um, you know, they they stepped up. Uh, we certainly as a pack, uh, Win with Women, uh, did what we could to invest in them, to mentor them. Uh, I know they had a lot of support uh, in their district and out of their district and, um it just uh, it, it made a difference. We won a lot of our Senate and House races, particularly because we had great women candidates in a year when uh, women were an important part of the race. Absolutely. Yeah. Candidates make the difference. And more women ran for elected office than at any time in history. Um, I'm wondering what it'll mean in your mind to have greater representation of women in the 2019 legislative session, particularly having a 50 percent uh, representation is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. Representation does matter. And I think in addition to us having a larger uh, group of women, we also have a diverse group of women in both the House and the Senate. And that does matter. You know, we we will get a, uh, a good look at uh, the issues and some good work with issues that uh, families care about and uh, communities of uh, diverse backgrounds care about. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of ways that women can make a difference. Our women are coming into the legislature uh, with their own uh, groups of skills and knowledge and, and uh, you know, experiences that are going to help them in um, many different issues that the legislature tackles. 
So. Well, it's going to be exciting to see. Um, you know, Alex, just circling back to what you were talking about earlier about some of the races that are currently too close to call. Uh, so in the 42nd in the Senate race between Democrat Pinky Vargas and Doug Erickson, that's one of them. Uh, the race for state rep between Democrat Justin Bonneau and Republican Luann Van Werven is also up in the air. And then the race for state rep in LD10 between uh, Democrat Dave Paul and Republican Dave Hayes is virtually tied. Can you give us a quick update on the Senate races? And I should also mention uh, Emily Randall's race as well is very close. Yeah. And so where we're at with these, and again, this is all sort of, there's new numbers being released every day as folks are counting ballots. So, you know, folks who are listening to this, whatever I'm saying, may be out of date at that point, but just, you know, really quickly to frame each one of them. In Whatcom County in the 42nd district where the Vargas Erickson race is and Benova and Werven, you know, the county has pretty much counted all the votes. And so we were, what we're working on now there is kind of similar to what a lot of what we're hearing about happening in Florida, and that's these issues around signatures. And so, you know, as everybody knows, you have to sign your ballot. And there are some people who either forgot to sign their ballot or there was a problem with their signature. You know, sometimes they, you know, they don't think that it's important and they just scribble or, you know, folks in a family, they accidentally get their ballots mixed up and sign each other's or um, some, something else. And so, you know, these folks, their votes aren't counted, and we have to go to them, and they have to fill out a special form to get their vote counted. And so, you know, we're going out to our supporters, you know, people who we had, you know, maybe previously doorbelled in the campaign and had said that they were going to vote for Pinky and saying, hey, you know, your vote didn't count. Here's the special form you have to fill out to to make it so. And, um, you know, so right now we're out across the district. We've gotten uh, a pretty sizable chunk of votes that are going to be coming in through that process that are going to be uh, folks who didn't have their vote counted who now will be able to because of that outreach. Uh, the challenge is, you know, we assume that the Republicans are doing the same with their voters. And so, you know, that 42nd district race is one that's really going to be in, uh, we're going to have to be on the edges of our seats a little bit until it's certified those signature issue votes are counted and we go into a recount, which won't happen until, uh, you know, the end of November and early December. So that's one that's not going to be resolved for quite some time for several more weeks. Uh, and then in the 26th district, which is sort of on the Kitsap Peninsula, the Gig Harbor and Bremerton areas, you know, this one, there still are about 800 or so votes left to count as of today uh, or as of Last night's count, Emily had a 12-vote lead. It is a nail-biter. So, I know. It's crazy. 12 votes, man. <laughs> yeah. And this one has really been a roller coaster. Emily was up for the first couple days. Then the Republicans got some good counts coming in, and Emily fell behind. And then she came back, and it just has this narrow lead right now. So we're doing that same kind of signature work in that district with the, because this race is going to go to a hand recount as well um, again in December. But uh, we also feel like we're in a position where there are enough votes to count remaining. We think we can get a decent share. We think that we're going to get a decent share of them. Um, you know, we are feeling pretty enthusiastic about the possibility of going into the recount ahead, which is really where you want to be. But again, you know, this one has been a roller coaster up and down. So we're feeling very, very optimistic. But, uh, you know, this is another one where we might not have the final number of what the margin is between the candidates for another, 
you know, three, three, maybe four weeks. Well, thank you for the update on that. And as you mentioned, things may change by the time people uh, hear this. We are actually recording at around 1 p.m. on Thursday. So uh, by the time you hear this, who knows what might have happened. But, you know, the three districts that I mentioned, uh, the 42nd, as you said, is in Whatcom. Uh, the 22nd LD, as you said, is in Kitsap Peninsula. And then the 10th is Island and Skagit counties. All of these have been traditional Republican strongholds. And Democrats performed very well in a number of red districts across the state. Marcy, what do you attribute that shift to? Is it just a a good year to be a Democrat? I know that you believe in the strength of the candidates. You know, I I think the the hard work to get voter turnout, we turned out tremendous numbers of voters. And, you know, that is the candidates themselves, uh, door knocking and phoning and all of the volunteers that we had and other ways that we were able to reach uh, people through social media and mail and uh, in some cases, television, um, you know, just getting voters to understand how important it was for them to turn out and to vote uh, for our Democrat candidates up and down the ballot. I think it made a, a huge difference. Yeah, you hear that? Indivisible members, voter outreach makes the difference. So you guys you rocked bet. it. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, also, I should just mention uh, a third of voters in the U.S. said that they were looking to send a negative message to Trump in their vote. Uh, this is speculative, Alex, but I'll just ask you to weigh in. How much do you think an anti-Trump sentiment drove Democratic victories here at the legislative level? You know, I think... It's always better to be, you know, I think Trump was a problem for Republican candidates. I think, especially in this new age of sort of social media and folks getting more of their news from, you know, sort of national outlets and so and from, you know, their Facebook or their Twitter, um, our local elections are getting a little bit more nationalized. And you think about what the closing argument from the Republican Party was this year, and it was stuff about that caravan. Mm -hmm. It was that terrible ad that Trump had them run the weekend before about, you know, immigrants are coming here to commit crimes. And, you know, I think that it's very unfortunate that there are some voters in this country who that kind of stuff resonates with. But, you know, for a lot of people in these swing districts, it doesn't. And, you know, some of these districts are becoming increasingly diverse, especially here in South and East King County. And I think that, um, you know, being associated with Trump at all is a problem for the, a lot of the Republican candidates. A lot of them had openly supported Trump and supported his policies. And, you know, that tie to them was a problem for them. But also just sort of the Republican Party message as a whole was this really ugly and divisive one that I don't think played with people in a lot of these swing districts. Um, you know, so I think that that was a big factor. Although really, I mean, to Marcy's point about putting in the work, you know, we're talking about Emily Randall being ahead by 12 votes right now. A lot of what made it possible to compete in some of these challenging districts, it wasn't necessarily the association with Trump, because in some of these, Trump actually didn't do that bad in the 2016 election. Uh, a lot of times what happened was we had candidates who went out there and they and their teams worked their butts off. And, you know, when you think about a 12 vote margin and a couple of days of doorbelling can get you 12 votes, you know, if you go out and you knock. 40 doors or something like that on a, on a Saturday afternoon, you know, you maybe talk to, you know, 10 to 12 voters or something like that. Some of them are probably already decided one way or the other, but you know, that one afternoon you swung three or four votes, maybe, you know, as of right now, this race is so close that a couple of, a couple of folks doorbelling shifts are the deciding factor. And so, um, 
you know, I think it shows that what really matters in these super close swing districts is candidates and campaign teams and supporters who are willing to go out there and put in the work. And I would also sort of button that by saying, hey, guess what? Your vote counts. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we needed a, yeah. a stronger reminder of that than what the control of the Virginia House of Delegates came down to, which was essentially drawing a name out of a hat. So every every vote counts. You know, um, Alex, you mentioned King County and Democrats had a big night in King County. Uh, Democrats Bill Ramos and Lisa Cowan won in the fifth. Uh, as we mentioned, Claire Wilson one in the 30th. Mona Doss beat Joe Fain in the 47th. And uh, then, of course, Dr. Kim Schreier won in the 8th Congressional District. So that means that with the exception of two seats in very rural areas in the 31st and 39th, King County is now represented entirely by Democrats. And the east side used to be pretty reliably Republican, and that is changing. Marcy, what, what do you observe happening here? Is this just shifting demographics? Is it something else? Uh, I, I think shifting demographics is one part of it. I think um, we got out there with our message about our values and our uh, efforts to make sure that uh, Washington was going to continue with uh, economic opportunities for all, with uh, you know opportunities for families to be safe and uh, have a good education. Um, you know, so we got out there with a good progressive values message and um, people, you know, they, they responded to that. They voted with us for that. Um, and I think, again, it's uh, in those areas, it's really putting in the hard work, you know, having great candidates and doing the work um, in a district that maybe didn't feel like they had the attention or the real opportunities to get their candidates elected before has made a difference. Yeah. And that's part of what we saw. And, you know, that that happened uh, from the congressional race on through, you know, the legislative races. Um, you know, there, there were certainly in the fifth district, for example, uh, election years previously where people felt like, well, you know, Reichert's just going to get elected. Why, why should I, you know, uh, why should I work? Why should I vote? Et cetera. But um, there was just a lot of time and effort invested. And again, I, I can't speak enough for the great candidates that we had. Yeah, absolutely agreed. But, you know, you also mentioned the resonance of progressive values with people in King mm -hmm. County. And that sort of shifts me into uh, our discussion about what the Democrats may be able to get accomplished in 2019, because um, as a way of, of teeing that up, as I mentioned in the intro, Democrats increased their margin in the state house by at least six. Uh, and of course, they held on to the majority of their seats and basically outperformed Republicans across the board. And I'm curious, do either of you see this election result as a mandate for Democrats or even progressive values uh, in 2019 in Olympia? Alex, I'll start with you. I think we are going to be able to get done some things that uh, some new challenges. I think folks are going to be out there working on the kind of stuff that we talked about on the campaign trail. And those are some of the nuts and bolts issues that affect folks' lives, like the affordability of housing, uh, health care, um, making sure that we've got great schools. So I, I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily some kind of mandate or something like that. It's just folks are going to do what they talked about doing, you know. And so I think that um, clearly the things that we talked about on the campaign trail connected with folks because our people got elected. And, you know, and I think those are going to be the kind of nuts and bolts issues that we focus on. Marcy, do you basically agree with that? 
I would agree. And of course, uh, 2019 will be the budget year for the next two years. And uh, so, you know, the, these values will come through in both our policies and our budgets that we see. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely things for the Democrats to be tackling as they uh, lead those efforts uh, in the budget. And, uh, you know, Alex mentioned a few of those things, housing and homelessness, certainly mental health. Um, there's some things in the K-12 education uh, system and, and uh, McCleary that people don't feel are finished, that many communities and school districts don't feel they're finished, such as special education funding and the need for school counselors. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a whole host of issues. And certainly there's some really important environmental issues we know we need to, to tackle to um, move both our economy and our um our region for future generations. So, well, let me ask you specifically about that because uh, of the the four major initiatives. Uh, Nine forty mm-hmm. de-escalation passed, as did the gun safety measure sixteen thirty nine, but sixteen thirty one failed to pass after basically being massively outspent by the fossil fuel industry. Uh, do you anticipate right. any sort of carbon fee or environmental legislation being put forth and passed uh, with that in mind? You know, I don't know what uh, the environmental bills are going to look like. I, what I do know is that it's it continues to be important to get a wide variety of stakeholders together and to bring legislators together, uh, I would hope, on a bar- bipartisan basis to make sure we can move some good policy and environmental issues. Um, I, I think that the legislature has uh, an even better opportunity than initiatives sometimes to move good policy forward because you have that opportunity to have, uh, you know, public uh, hearings and, um, you know, make sure that ideas get vetted and um, that, you know, in the end you come out with a, with a good policy. And sometimes in the legislature, you're moving pieces rather than the, rather than an entire uh, larger chunk. So I would hope that uh, we'll see, some some things that uh, from 1631 that can move forward and um, will be one of the priorities. So we'll we'll see what they do with it. I just um, I want to be uh, hopeful and I want to uh, look at it as a priority. Well, we know that Governor Inslee is very favorable to environmental legislation, and so if something reaches his desk, he will certainly sign it. Uh, We talked about this on the last show, and this is certainly very exciting to me and most people listening, and that is the prospect of universal health care getting passed next year. Um, I do know that the group Healthcare for All Washington announced that they are working with Representative Nicole Macri and Senator David Frocht on a new bill that would take uh, steps toward providing affordable coverage for all Washingtonians. Um, Alex, whether it's this or some other measure, how do you see the chances now of getting universal health care passed with a newly expanded Democratic majority? I mean, I think that across the state, candidates who ran this year ran on an issue of health care. It was a massive issue for Democratic candidates and for Democratic voters. And And that was nationally, too, not just statewide. Yeah. And so this is going to be a top priority going for, for us going into the state. I'm not sure what that bill that you mentioned is going to look like yet. I think they're still kind of putting it together and sort of seeing what can they do immediately? What can we do that's sort of a, a longer term phasing kind of thing? Um, you know, it's a complicated issue, as you can imagine. And, uh, you know, it's we don't, you know, as sort of at the federal level, they've got Medicare right there, and you can just sort of say, okay, well, the age from, you know, change the age from 65 to 55 or whatever. And um, 
you know, we, it's a little bit more complicated for us being just one state, but it's something that folks are going to be working really hard on. You know, a couple of things, though, that I know are going to be really low-hanging fruit for us. Well, I mean, they'll still be challenging issues, but the sort of the, the ones that we're going to take on as for sure, um, you know, Marcy mentioned mental health care. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a lot of work to do in our mental health care system in here in Washington State, making sure that folks can get care in their community, that we're not just sending everybody to the giant western and eastern state hospitals, but that, um, you know, we're getting more effective community care that's out local to folks and really helping to solve those mental health challenges for folks before they get bad. Um, and they need to go to sort of some one of the hospitals or something like that that uh, are for the uh, bigger problems. And so I think that that's something that's going to be top priority. And then also prescription drug costs. It's something that we can actually do a lot here at the state level on. And I think that we're going to see uh, that be a big focus of sort of things that we can get done and actually deliver on this year. You know, those are going to be some of the really top priorities. And I think folks are going to sort of you know, I think the full universal health care thing, I think there are going to be some things that we can do this year, some things that uh, will have to, will take a little bit longer. But it's, uh, health care, I mean, it's what everybody's talking about, and, and folks are really excited to get to work on it. Yeah, absolutely. So there is some momentum behind it, which is, is very encouraging. Marcy, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, you talked about education funding and some other uh, line items. Uh, is there anything else that you're hopeful about in terms of uh, potential legislation getting passed in this new session in 2019? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, there's probably a, a list of things that I would like to make sure uh, move forward. But one thing I would like to mention is um, as they work through the budget is to make sure that Washington state uh, leads the nation in making sure that our, our census here is accurate and people are not left out. Yeah. Families are not left out. Um, diversity is not left out. And I think that we as a state can uh, make some investment in that, in our budget and in the way we shape our policies and, and uh, perhaps, you know, lead. I think we're all a bit worried about uh, what the feds are not going to do with that. Um, and you're speaking specifically about the question about uh, legal status uh, in the sense Legal status, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes a difference. It certainly matters in terms of some of the education funding and other grants that our state and uh, our cities and school districts might get. And um, it's an important part of just making sure that if we're going to have a census, it's going to be accurate and beneficial. So, Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. And I I do feel like if any state has an advantage there uh, going into the census, it would be a state like Washington, which has achieved a blue trifecta Mm -hmm. and has managed to increase its numbers for Democrats in both chambers. So Alex Bond, Marcy Maxwell, thank you so much for joining us again on the program. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show while you are there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. I love your emails and suggestions. Please do keep them coming. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thank you again to my guests, Marcy Maxwell, Alex Bond, and Angel Padilla. Special thanks go out to to Dylan Kate, Emily Phelps, Abby Porter, and Luis Sanchez. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.